Hey everyone, it's your boy Downtown Josh Brown. Welcome to the new and improved Compound Show. Historically, this podcast has been the audio segments of our YouTube shows, but I've made it a special project this summer, and we're going to revamp the whole thing. So play the music, and I will explain on the other side. Welcome to the Compound Show podcast. Each week, we let you in on some of the best conversations we're having about markets, investing, and life. Just a quick reminder, the hosts of the show are employees of Ritholtz Wealth Management. All opinions expressed are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Okay, here we go. Okay, welcome back. So here's what's going on. Going forward, the podcast will be posted Thursday night each week. So every Friday when you wake up, you'll have a brand new episode. I'll be opening the show with my thoughts on everything going on in the markets and in the news, sharing some of the best stuff I've read or listened to that you might have missed. We're going to take some listener questions and try to answer the best ones. And the second half will be interviews. We're going to do what are your thoughts with Michael Batnick and whatever stuff that we've done during the course of that week. So you'll always have new content in the podcast, uh, again, posted every Thursday night for Friday morning and weekend listening. I was listening to the founder and CEO of Spotify. His name is Daniel Eck. Uh, he was on Patrick O'Shaughnessy's show, and he was saying voice recordings or podcasts are the closest thing to real life of all the creative mediums out there. Um, so, so what he's talking about is podcasts and, and listening to someone's audio recording is more realistic than a movie or a TV show um, because what you're watching on screen has been manipulated or you're only seeing the action from one angle or two angles. Um, whereas an audio recording, it, it's like being in the room with somebody who's talking. So Daniel was telling the story about I think he said he was in a recording studio listening to the playback of banter um, with with uh, with John Lennon and Paul McCartney between takes from the recording of the Beatles White Album. Um, and he got the chills because it was like being there in the room with John and Paul talking in between recording the songs um, and making jokes with each other. And, and you, you might have heard that uh, before, but he was saying like just listening to that on high fidelity uh, sound system was was the closest to to real life of any other, you know, more so than writing, more so than watching. So um, Daniel X making a huge bet on podcasts. Spotify bought the Joe Rogan show, which is uh, maybe the, the highest rated or, or the most downloaded podcast each week. Um, and then he also bought the Ringer Network, which is Bill Simmons. And on the Ringer Network, they have three dozen other shows some of them are about sports. Some of them are about pop culture. Um, but Spotify bought the whole thing. So he's basically going to build this um, premium podcast network behind a paywall. And fans of Joe Rogan, fans of Bill Simmons, and whatever else they acquire um, will become Spotify users uh, if they want to continue to get that content. So it's been done before. Howard Stern did it with uh, XM Sirius a generation ago. Um, and I... I wouldn't be surprised to see a lot of the premium podcasts go behind a, a wall. Um, Apple hasn't done it yet, 
So Spotify seems to have this space to themselves and, and we'll see what happens. But my podcast will be available everywhere. Um, Spotify, Apple, Stitcher. Uh, what do I use? Overcast. So you'll 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 be able to find it. Um, but I, I think Daniel Leck is making a smart bet and I want to make the same one. So being able to talk directly to you guys and bring you exclusive interviews with all the people I know on Wall Street, people in the advisor and asset management community, people from the fintech space. Um, we do these interviews on YouTube, but um, some of them can go longer and some of them will be exclusive just to the podcast. So uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. And I think I'm going to learn as much as you learn just from having these conversations with people who really know what they're talking about, subject matter experts, professionals, business owners. Uh, so I think it's going to be great. Um, I have a lot of friends who run very successful podcasts and they're having a lot of fun doing it. If you listen to Patrick or Ted Seides at the uh, Capital Allocators podcast, uh, you probably know Michael and Ben. They're, they work at my firm, but they run the Animal Spirits podcast. My partner, Barry, runs Masters in Business for Bloomberg, Meb Faber. There are so many, and they've built these great platforms and relationships with their listeners and fans. And I want to do the same with you guys, and hopefully... I want to be someone who can educate and entertain you each week. Um, okay, so that's what's going to happen going forward. I think you guys are going to love it. I'm going to put a lot of time and effort into this, and you know, I, I'm never gonna I'm never gonna do a podcast just for the sake of doing a podcast. So every week we're going to have new stuff on there, and I hope you love it. And I'm going to try to have as much fun doing it as possible, and hopefully that will come through. So coming up, we have the all new edition from this week of What Are Your Thoughts. With Michael Batnick and I, this week we get into the outrageous size of the Apple App Store. We get into a reason why critics of the Federal Reserve may have a point. Um, I have an amazing statistic from Fidelity about how many investors dumped all their stocks this spring, and there's so much more. So here it is. Welcome back to What Are Your Thoughts? It's me, Downtown Josh Brown. I'm here with Michael Batnick. Um, a summer edition of What Are Your Thoughts, our favorite game. I don't know what Mike wants to ask me about. He doesn't know what I want to ask him about. I have some ideas. You have some guesses? All right, we'll, I guess we'll see. Okay, so I'm going to go first. I want to talk to you about something that I heard you and Ben talking about on your podcast, and I think you've written about bubble behavior during uh, a recession or a crash, and you guys seem surprised that – um, we had all these like mini speculative bubbles in the stock market, but I wasn't surprised because I always see this stuff um, in in recessions and, and bear markets because I think it brings people out that love volatility. Why were you guys so surprised to see things like Chesapeake and Hertz and um, all of the Robinhood stocks? Like, why was that so surprising to you guys? Why are you surprised that we were surprised? I don't know. You've you've seen bear markets before. Like, you're not. You're not 22 years old. This is, I, I don't know. I remember in, in the 2008, 2009 bear market, the most actively traded stocks were not even stocks. They were triple leveraged ETFs. Like FAZ. FAZ, TNA. Remember, remember TNA? TZ and TZA. Right. So there were people betting on triple leveraged versions of the VIX, small caps, bank stocks. Those were always in the most active column. Um, and that was going on in 2009 when, 
we were really at the at the bottom of of the economy and people betting both. I just think volatility brings out gambling, not levels of the stock market. Yeah, okay, fair. Volatility absolutely brings out gambling, but last time and like no other time actually, I should say, we never had a quarantine like this. We never had free commissions. You never had uh, Portnoy, like a Portnoy like figure leading the charge. Wall Street bets. You never had all these things, so it was the perfect. Uh, set up for this type of mini that we're seeing. And it's, it is weird to see bubble behavior in a recession. It just is. I just, I just don't think so. I think, I think separate the recession from the bear market. You, I think there are always pockets of bubbles, even in bear markets, because people are betting on even volatility. I don't know. I think, I think it just brings out speculators. Um, here's what made it maybe exacerbated at this time. Obviously, no sports and it's the only game in town. So I think like there's an element. I think more that. than. I think more than that is the lockdown and people not having anything to do. Yeah, that's a good point. So, right. So it's, it's, it's two things. It's nothing to bet on and nothing else to do. And the markets are. So l- l- let me ask you a question. Do you think that there's any sort of signal here in terms of like a Portnoy top or anything like that? I think there's like an anecdote. I think there's an anecdotal signal um, just with trading volumes in certain stocks and like maybe the Hertz uh, Chesapeake thing from last week represents the apex of that. So basically, like people betting on the equities of companies that have already filed for bankruptcy um, and having those stocks go up 100, 200, 300 percent like that, that to me, I, I don't know if there's any data. I don't think we've ever seen anything like that. So I would say like it's an anecdotal top for the speculative part of the market, but maybe not for the whole market. But how about this? People are like, oh, what are they going to do when the airlines stop working or the bankruptcy stocks stop working? Then they'll trade VIX products yeah, or do something else. Do. whatever's working. They'll trade. That's yeah. That's I think that's my point. If you're looking for action, you will find it. It'll it'll exist somewhere, and then everyone right, will say this is a new bubble. Let's move on from the young traders to the older investors. An article just came out in the Wall Street Journal. Data oh, is, it, from is it about Fidel- me? Data from Fid- wow. Data from Fidelity. Nearly a. Th- a third of investors who are above the age of 65 dumped all of their stock sometime between February and May. How many? A third? A third. And if they look at the all of their investors, 18%. That's rational because what if that third actually are living on, on that money and, and pulling that money out? They can't afford as much volatility as someone who's not living on the money rational, but correct. What are you saying? No, I'm not saying it's correct. I'm saying if you are actively- Are you t- saying it's understandable? Yeah, of course it's understandable. Yeah. Well, no, it's, March- it's beyond just rational. We don't know the financial circumstances of that third of the people that pulled all their money out of stocks. Some, how, may- about, how about the- Fine, forget about that. How about 18% of everybody? 18% sold yeah. all of their stocks. All. That's, now, it's, that's wild. It's impossible- there's no, there's no real great answer here, but what do you say to somebody now? Or what does somebody do now? Hold on a second. After they sold. Hold on a second. 18% of all Fidelity retail accounts or a specific type of account? All Fidelity okay. retail accounts. So accounts. Fidelity is the largest, uh, the largest brokerage firm in the country. So they are a $7 trillion firm. So let's say they are the most accurate representation of what um, – of what investors are doing, right? Maybe like them and, and Schwab, even more so than Vanguard, right? 
So yeah. we're saying that a fifth of investors cashed out of the stock market. That's yes. I would never have guessed it was that high. Um, uh, where, where, during what months? Now it says from February 20th to May 15th. So I'm sure that of that 18%, whatever, uh, you know, a, a portion of them sold after the rebound, a portion of them saw stocks rise. So yeah, they didn't all like, sell the low, right? Correct. Yeah, okay. exactly. I think well, that's an easy conclusion to draw, but that's not, that's, we don't have data there. All right, here's, what I'm, here's what I'm going to tell you. The one third of people over 65 is very understandable because within that group, there are people who are probably trying to save a business. Within that group, there are people who are maybe taking 4% or 5% out of that capital each year to, to pay for their lifestyle. Like if, if that's what you're doing, you can't tolerate uh, a stock market that sells off 50%. If you're living on that money today, like it's, 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 ob- it's obviously the type of behavior that's indicative of people that need the money for the most part. I don't think all one on, third sold on. just because they were scared. But uh, but a big portion of that them certainly sold because they were scared. Because let's say that you're 65 to 69. Yeah. How much? What percentage of stocks do you think are in your portfolio anyway? It's not like these people you're probably under. 50%. And I have no data here. Yeah, yeah. So if you went from 40 percent stocks down to zero, that's not rational. Well, that's, that's fear. Well, that's that's why God sent financial advisors into the world. Is is as as Nick Murray would say. That's so. Those are people that are either. They, they By the were, way, that quote that that quote's a bit. It's a little much. Whatever. It's a little much. Nick's my guy. Um, if you, I think if you had a financial advisor, you probably didn't cash out all your stocks. And if you didn't, it doesn't mean you did cash out all your stocks. But um, if you did, maybe you would benefit from having like somebody to bounce things off of. And if you're on like one of these um, email advisory platforms at a place like Fidelity, or whatever. Um, but you're somebody that's prone to panic, it might not be the best fit for you. You might be better off with a person to talk to because I think most investors who actually had someone to talk to probably didn't. I'm just making this up, but this is my guess based on knowing people and seeing this before. If you had a second voice in your ear besides your own voice and someone who's a little bit more emotionally detached, you probably didn't cash out all your stocks. So that's that's why I make that that comment. What percentage of people who cashed out, let's say on the way down, yeah, are are able to wipe the slate clean and come back into the market with you know objectively None. without any baggage? None until uh, it, time has to pass. If you if you let's say you sold last week of March, first week of April, which was totally understandable. Like if you took yourself to zero and you said, "I'll get back in when when things calm down," well, things calm down and the market's forty percent higher. Uh, a forty percent bounce off that low, rather. So, like now, you can recognize things are more calm, but you can also recognize that you're going to be buying back in much higher, and it's really, really hard to do that. Like, I think it's almost, I think it's almost impossible. I, like, I would have trouble doing that. So, I think if you're look, this is what separates rules based investing and a strategy planned in advance from somebody who just like makes moves based on how they're feeling. So, and and just because you're rules based doesn't mean all your buys and sells are going to look good, but there's a, there's a rule that's determining what you'll do in advance. If you're just like, ah, I really feel like I should be in cash, then right now you're not saying, I feel like I should buy back in. You're saying, I feel like I should wait. And maybe you'll, you'll get another chance. Um, it's hard. I think the, menta- the mentality is probably like, I'll, watch, I'll get in the market. I'll get back in and just my luck will go down again. And so let's say that they do get back in. 
the first three percent down day, they're out. So let's say that you got back in last week and we had that really awful day. Stocks were down six percent. Right. You probably panic out that day too, no? Because I think that last week, behavior, oh, the Dow down eighteen hundred points. You're like, I can't believe I just gone. bought. Yeah, you're gone. Past behavior is the best indicator of future behavior. I think we all know that to be true. All right, what right. do you got? So, so the last thing I'll say on that, um, Barry and I started working together in 2011, which was like two years removed from the bottom of the stock market. The first three years of us onboarding clients, I would say like two thirds of them were people who were sitting in cash. Like they got out, some of them early, so they didn't get killed or some of them lost a lot, but they were almost like almost everybody was in cash still. And they needed somebody to do it for them. They couldn't, they couldn't bring themselves to buy back in. They needed someone to tell them, give me your money and I'll do it. And thank God, you know, they, they, they found someone, whether it was us or another advisor. Uh, all right. Here's what I want to ask you about. I'm like not, you know, like I don't dwell on all the Fed criticism. Like I'm not one of those people that buys into all the conspiracy theories. Um, but uh, I think, but well, I think in this moment, we are really seeing the Fed way overstep like its purpose, its bounds and do things that like are just so far away from what we traditionally thought of as as their mandate. I want to read you something Peter Bookvar put out this morning. And he's like a Fed critic, um kind of like a, you know, let's let's have less regulation and we'll need less intervention kind of guy, but he's reasonable. He's talking about the Fed buying investment grade bonds. LQ, they're literally buying LQD directly, which is what they're doing right now, which is wild, by the way. Um, so he's saying uh, the Fed is directly making investments in Apple and Microsoft bonds by doing that. Um, the LQD, the index backing it and what the Fed is buying, they're buying Anheuser-Busch, Goldman Sachs, CVS, Wells Fargo, Verizon, Visa, Comcast and Berkshire Hathaway. Why do we need the Fed doing that? Like it's some sort of an emergency. Like what in what way is that facilitating anything right now? So they were buying they were buying three hundred million dollars worth a day of bond ETFs. Yeah, why do we need that? And now they're going to be buying, they're creating like a custom index or a broad-based index, I should say, where they're going to be buying bonds directly. Um through but they're gonna be buying but they're going to be buying outstanding bonds. Yeah. So I almost would more understand if they were buying direct from the companies where they were like, okay, we need to provide direct liquidity. But in the secondary market. The, the companies in the, the companies that are investment grade don't need capital directly from the Fed. That's what the, well, de- that's saying, the definition of investment grade. But, it's com- but they're also buying companies who lost their investment grade status as a result of this. Right. So – Peter's basically saying JP Morgan can put take treasuries on its balance sheet, put them up as collateral, and buy some of these bonds out there that are yielding seven, eight percent. What like the banks should be doing that, but we regulated them out of that business. And that's why it falls on the Fed um, to rescue fallen angels. But then going a step higher, there's what is the transmission mechanism by which the Fed buys Apple bonds? Right now, like how, in what way does that facilitate anything in the real economy? Um, well, I guess I guess by doing that, they don't want to discriminate and, and be like an active market participants where they say, OK, we're going to buy Caterpillar, but we're not going to buy Honeywell. We're going to buy Microsoft. We're not going to buy Apple. So I understand that argument. Is, that argument is lost on me. I don't know. I, I don't I don't get it. Well, I don't, you want, I don't you want see- them to be you want them to be like uh, acting like gun lock out there. I mean, 
Let me no. ask you this. What if they had rules? What if they only bought what if they only bought the bonds of companies whose debt payments are higher than their cash flows, which are the, the definition of fallen angels? So okay. like these are companies that Reasonable. actually need it. Reasonable. Uh, what is the downside? The downside is market distortion, people not trusting the system. Um, too late. Asset price inflation. Like we can go on and on and on. I know. Too late. All right. What do you got? This is a big question. I'm not really sure what I'm looking for as an answer, but what are some of the lessons? Like what did we learn with the fastest bear market ever, the most ridiculous bounce ever? Like are there any tangible takeaways, not so that we can be better prepared for the next time, but just broader investing lessons? What did we learn as investors? Like I No, well, it's, no as epidemiologists. <laughs> um, well, I learned a lot more lessons about business than I did about investing this year. Um, so, but what did we learn as investors? I think we relearned that nobody knows anything. Like you just had the fastest bear market in history. It took 20 something days for the stock market to lose a third of its value, which has never happened in history before. Absolutely. Nobody saw that coming. Absolutely. No one. Okay. Um, and then immediately following, you just had the best 50 day rally in history with a 39.6% gain for the S and P. Immediately following the fastest bear market ever. There are people writing commentary now saying, did we even have a bear market? Or was that just a panic? Like that, that's literally what people are saying because of how fast both halves of that took. So um, nobody saw really either one coming um, or for the reason they came. So what did we learn? That quite frankly, you can read as much investment commentary as you want and it'll educate you as far as what people are thinking. But you will never read anything that will prepare you for the real shit that goes on. Um, and I think you have to like get comfortable with that. That's why you earn 7% a year in stocks uh, versus 4% a year in, in bonds because you're taking that extra risk. Um, and so you just have to learn to live with it. And if you can't, um, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe investing is in for you. I don't know. That's my takeaway. Why? What did you, what did you, what did you learn as an investor from this? Is, like, is there something tangible that you can take away from this that you didn't already know? When the stock market goes down 21%, uh, 35% in 21 days, the Fed will step in. <laughs> the Fed stepped in before it was even I mean, I, I don't, down. Yeah, I don't know. I, I guess, yeah, I think you're right. Like, it's just relearning lessons that- The Fed stepped in in November. The Fed, the Fed started doing QE in November. With the repo stuff? Yeah, dude. What do you think that is? The Fed is buying assets in November already. This We-, we, st- we, we we had Fed intervention in the bond and cash markets three months before the top of the market. It's, it's endless. That's that's the point I was trying to make before. All right, whatever. Um, I went to a restaurant for the first time, uh, I guess, since February over the weekend. Where'd you it's a go? Weird. So we were on my friend's boat um, and we stopped at uh, like an outdoor place on the water. Like we pulled the boat up to the dock. So we ate outside. Um, the waitresses had masks. You had to wear a mask to go into the building to use the, the restroom, but you could sit at the table without one. And they brought plastic silverware, like in individual packets. So like a plastic knife and fork, but everything else was, to- oh, and, and drinks were out of plastic cups, but at this place they might be anyway, but everything else was totally normal. And it was nice. Like we left, a, we left a huge tip. Um, this, you know, this poor girl is walking around with a mask on her face. It's 85 degrees out. 
but it was nice. We sat at the table for two hours. Nobody wanted to get up. Um, I don't know. Have you been? Have you been anywhere to eat? No. What What's it going to take for you to go to a restaurant? Are you Are you mentally there yet, or? Um, I just don't really feel like going. Like I really, you don't like you don't miss sitting down with another no, family I mean, or another you, couple from you a guys meal? do that a lot more than we do. Like it's we have to get a babysitter. You know what I mean? And we're not really letting anybody in the house yet. And. Okay. I really don't miss it. I have no desire to like – now, where you were, that sounds great. You're like, you're on the beach. Like, that's nice. But like, would I go and sit in the La Piazza parking lot? Like, I don't want to do that. So, what Like side sidewalk tables though. Yeah, they, I, Nassau County lets all the restaurants um, do some tables outside, which they should have done years ago. I mean, that that doesn't interest me at all. So I'm not I'm not dying to go back to a restaurant. Um, okay. All right. We, we were we, – we missed it more than we thought we did, I guess, I guess what I'm saying. All right, what's up? So I don't know what's going on, but I'm starting to wonder if I even if I even like movies. <laughs> like you know, I love going to the movie theater. You like shitty movies, we know. But I mean, like sh- like Shark Attack movies. That's your thing. I do love Deep Blue Sea, but maybe I'm just on like a string of movies that I don't love. Like for example, these are the movies that I've seen recently. Did you see King of Staten Island? No. Like I thought it was is a that the, is that the kid from Saturday Night Live? Yeah, I, like Bill Burr was incredible. I thought it was like a sweet story, but it was just like boring and slow. I watched um, uh, uh, Perks of Being a Wallflower. You ever see that one? The f- are you watching hold, that for? And then I saw where are you, where are you getting that? I'm just where like are you getting that from. Hold on, and I saw Bull Durham. I never saw Bull Durham. That's like a classic, right? Um, I all right. So I like westerns. I I like I like movies where it's um good versus evil or it's really murky and i like i like uh movies set in a time and place where like people had to be more independent and um they had to save themselves and no wait hold like, on so uh, let me just, morality tales let me just finish so that's what i would be if i were you i would just start watching like the best westerns ever made no and if, stop you watching were, if you were if you were you being a wallflower if you were you you would watch those no if i were you i'm, I'm teaching you something that you don't You're know not about. me okay is true is watching movies at home during this like changing how again we, it feels like homework almost. again no it's a function of what movie you got to watch a movie that you can just get totally lost in if you're watching a movie and you have your phone in your hand you're not really right you're not really watching it so true uh, i don't know that's what i would say all right here's my last one um the app store so Apple very quietly became the first company in history to hit $1.5 trillion in market cap. I feel like there was a lot more fanfare when they hit a trillion and then like very quickly they they they, they added 50% more market cap during uh, a pandemic, which is incredible. So they are saying today, uh, this is a story at TechCrunch, that the App Store ecosystem in total, meaning every mobile app on the, the Apple platform, facilitated $519 billion in billings and sales globally last year. Holy cow. Think about how big that number is. And then the $1.5 trillion market cap doesn't sound as ludicrous. That's half a trillion in commerce. So that's everything from people booking an Uber to people ordering groceries from the Target app, so let me ask, and everything in between. What? what so that money, five hundred nineteen billion, is a lot of money. Where was that money being spent prior to the App Store? Physical Walmart, physical Costco, um, physical supermarket, taxi cabs, paying people cash 
like get in a cab, take me to the airport. Here's thirty dollars cash, like like that. Um, so the, all right, so they're saying, listen to this. The study notes that because Apple only receives commissions from the billings associated with digital goods and services. So in other words, they don't get a piece of e-commerce. If you're on the Target app and you spend $200, Apple doesn't get anything from that. But they do get a piece of services and digital goods. For example. They're saying more than 85% of the $519 billion total accrues solely to third-party developers and businesses. Um, So they're getting a commission on some stuff, but not all. Out of that $520 billion, $268 billion of it was retail. And a lot of that includes traditional brick-and-mortar retailers. So, I mean, a lot of stuff is getting thrown in there, but they're saying ride-hailing apps like Uber and Lyft were $40 billion in sales. $40 billion. So what Apple has built basically is like a layer on top of the global economy, and they're getting a commission on some and and not on other, but they're facilitating – half a trillion dollars in commerce every year, then you can start to rationalize why this company is worth a trillion and a half dollars. Looks cheap. Because it's, 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 on that metric, it's cheap. All right, that's all I got. Let us know what your thoughts are on the topics below. Mike and I love to hear your feedback. Uh, we love when you guys play along. We're always interested in your comments and suggestions. Go ahead and smash that like button for us. Subscribe to the channel if you have not already. And we will be back very soon. Thanks for listening. Check us out at thecompoundnews.com for daily investing and market insights. You can watch all of our videos at youtube.com slash thecompoundrwm. Talk to you next week.